I don't really work on a star system, but you all get all the gold stars for being here on spring break, South by, and daylight savings time, right? Like the triple threat that you all overcame or that you're overcoming online as well. So uh, thank you for being here with us. Uh, I wanted to start us off thinking about spring break and perhaps sharing a little bit. So my question for us to mull over for a few moments uh, individually, and then perhaps if you know someone nearby, you might pivot and offer to share with them is, when you think about spring break growing up, what comes to mind? When you think about spring break growing up, what comes to mind? Take about a minute, maybe 30 seconds each to sort of just share whatever words or thoughts encapsulate that for you. All right, so would love to just hear a few words or thoughts. Uh, just feel free to shout them out. What are some thoughts, ideas when you think about spring break growing up that encapsulate that experience for you? We didn't have it. There was not a spring break, and we all have a collective lament uh, on behalf of that. Um, other thoughts for things that encapsulate spring break growing up for you? No school. What more did one need, really, right? Excellent. Camping. Camping, yes. I occasionally did more of the glamping kind of variety, as I'll share more about in just a second, but I'm with you there as well. Going to the pool. Going to the pool. Nice. Spring cleaning. Okay, so younger years, more fishing, beach with family. Wholesome family. Oh, okay. You didn't necessarily shade the high school collegiate years in the unwholesome category, but I'm hearing maybe the trips with the friends may have trended a little bit more that direction. Fair enough. Fair enough. Any others would like to share? Fiesta, Texas. Wow. I, when I moved to San Antonio, I was sure I was going to go there all the time. And so I, the first year got like the membership because I went there once, literally never went to Fiesta, Texas the entire time I was in San Antonio again. So uh, there's that. Um, when I think of spring break, especially as a kid growing up, I think of uh, the Big Bend area. My mother's uh, side of the family particularly used to own a ranch out there. And for my mother and for her side of the family, it felt like there were lots of ties to the land, that it was a place, that it was home. And I think in the picture that uh, hopefully yeah, you're seeing, this one on the left is a very young me at the far left there, followed by my mother, my abuelito. And in front of him, it would be very important to him that he's passed away that I mentioned this, is his dog, Tiempo, that he loved about as much as life himself. Uh, you can barely see it maybe, but in the dark shade, there is that dog. Uh, and then... Oh, my Tia Teddy. Uh, and then the other photo, we would also, the ranch was right by, connected to, and on the Rio Grande. And so we would also occasionally, if there was enough water, which was always a big if, uh, we would uh, get a chance to go uh, rafting as well. And so when I think of, I think some of my own enjoyment even now as an adult and going hiking uh, and camping and other things, I think back to these pilgrimages that we would make every year as a family uh, to this ranch. But I also think about childhood me and 
the fact that I was quite insistent, my parents would probably say stubborn and spoiled, in requesting that uh, while we go out to this place that felt totally disconnected from the rest of the world, we bring a TV-VCR combo. Do you remember these things? It's like about the size of a small compact car these days. Um, and, uh, and also whatever video game system, I think usually Nintendo or Super Nintendo during those years that I had all the way out to the ranch. So we would have all of these other, you know, sort of more like we're going hiking, we're going camping supplies, and then here's Christopher's, and we rented it. We didn't own this, we would like, my parents would go. I don't, I didn't know you could even rent them, but apparently you could. Would rent a TV and VCR combo and then bring my video game system. And that's my version of glamping uh, as a kid <laughs> when I was campy. There was just something about me that could not be disconnected and unplugged for that long, right? That just struggled. It's like, I might be able to make it a few hours during the day while we were hiking various uh, mountains and trails and canyons, but uh, I needed to know I was gonna have my fix by the time the sun was setting, right? We were gonna get home and be able to do that. In our passage today, uh, we're looking at the story of the woman at the well or the Samaritan woman at the well. And it starts off, In verse 3, Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Uh, There is no geographical necessity for Jesus to go through Samaria. In fact, probably many of you may have heard in other sermons and other studies of this text that uh, Jewish people intentionally chose to go around Samaria, even though it was, in fact, the most direct route in between Judea, which is the region where Jerusalem was, and Galilee in the north, which is where Jesus was more camping out and home-based at. Uh, That most Jewish people would either choose to go alongside the sea on the coast, which is a much further away around, like taking the toll road around Austin, It's like, okay, yeah, you can do that. And if I-35 is being I-35, which it usually is, that probably might make sense. Uh, But otherwise, it's a lot longer route to go if it's not doing that. Um, Or they would go up the Jordan River, which also would be like doing the same thing, but just in the opposite direction. There is no, nothing necessitating that Jesus go to Samaria. And so likely there is something that is important to Jesus about diverting from business as usual, from status quo, from the status quo, from the normal patterns that other people would have expected him to do in going this particular way. We've just also heard that he, the religious leaders are getting, it seems like perhaps a little bit jealous. In the previous verses, it talks about they're noticing that Jesus' people are baptizing even more people than John the Baptist people were, and it seems like perhaps there's some tension there. So it may be that Jesus also is feeling very scared for his life, very uh, unsafe in this moment, and perhaps he was just trying to find the fastest way. I'm no, we don't know explicitly what his motivation is. The passage goes on, verse 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. I love that in this story, and particularly in the Gospel of John, where 
All the different gospels give us different sort of shades and perspectives of Jesus. And for my own take, it seems often like in the gospel of John, Jesus is really leaning into the God mode version of who he is. And so I do love that the author of the gospel of John takes the moment here to say, and Jesus was tired. <laughs> Jesus is having perhaps his own spring break experience. And whether he was trying to make a social statement, whether he was just trying to find the quickest way to get back home, uh, whatever it was, Jesus feels physically, perhaps also emotionally and mentally, maybe even spiritually fatigued. Jesus feels very human in this passage. And so he just sits down by or more likely on a well. Wells often had big rocks that were covering them. And so he's probably literally sitting on this well and just kind of taking a breather. And our passage lets us know that it was about noon, which would mean whatever the weather was doing uh, in the Middle East during that time of year, it was probably about the hottest time of day. The poet David White in his book, Crossing the Unknown Sea, Work as a Pilgrimage of Identity, uh, writes the following. I can remember being in a state coffee company in San Antonio, Texas, the first time I read this passage, just feeling arrested in my steps with it. The great tragedy of speed as an answer to the complexities and responsibilities of existence is that very soon we cannot recognize anything or anyone who is not traveling at the same velocity as we are. We see only those moving in the same whirling orbit and only those moving with the same urgency. Soon, we begin to suffer a form of amnesia caused by the blurred vision of velocity itself, where those germane to our humanity are dropped from our minds one by one. We start to lose sight of any colleagues who are moving at a slower pace, and we start to lose sight of the bigger, slower circles that underlie our work. We especially lose sight of the big, unfolding waveform passing through our lives that is indicative of our larger, more generous existence. There's something about the pace of life that we find ourselves in, isn't it, that creates this kind of amnesia, this disconnection not only from ourselves but from others and from the world and perhaps even from our own sense of calling and belonging and from our own sense of being held by the divine. Ruth Haley Barton in her wonderful book, Invitation to Retreat, asks, where am I in danger these days? It's a good question for us, perhaps, if we want to join Jesus and this acknowledging that we are tired and in need of rest. Where am I in danger these days? Say something honest to God about what you are noticing. Just this question alone, right? If I were to encourage you to do anything this week might be to just take this question, where am I in danger these days? And to begin to have a conversation with yourself, with others, with the divine, about what you're noticing, about what's coming up in that. Uh, I have alluded to and in other spaces shared that uh, when I first moved to San Antonio, I had been working at Baylor and been living this sort of frenzied life as a college pastor and just connected, it felt like everywhere and with everything and trying to meet with as many students as possible and a dear friend and mentor uh, 
encouraged me when I moved to San Antonio. She said, she said, I love you and I love your life, but the pace and the amount of time that you're putting towards other people, uh, I'm observing means you're often neglecting yourself. You're not tending to your own life and to your own well-being. I want to challenge you when you move to San Antonio to take a different pace and a different posture towards your ministry and towards your life and to see what shows up when you did. She was a dear friend who was saying to me, I, I think you're in danger, Christopher. I, I think uh, though God is doing wonderful, beautiful things through your life that uh, you're also missing some significant things about actually being anchored to and connecting with your life. What would happen if you slow down and rest? What, what might you be running away from? Some other questions that Ruth Haley Barton uh, gives us to consider around why are we so tired? And she gives perhaps a few things that might be connected to that sense of tiredness. Perhaps we're functioning out of an inordinate sense of ought and should. Perhaps we find it difficult or humiliating to receive help from others. Maybe we're living as a performer rather than from our personhood. Perhaps we have few or no boundaries on our service and availability. Another set of reasons might be that we're overfunctioning, carrying this great burden of unhealed wounds, sadness, unresolved tension, toxicity in one or more relationships. We might be experiencing information overload, or perhaps we're just mired in our own need to manage and control. Right? When, we, when I'm in that mode of I need to control everything, everything feels so exhausting, right? Because it's hard for any of us to try to be the God of the universe. Um, Caroline Lewis, uh, in her book, Belonging, which is an entire sort of book Bible study, if you will, on the study of, on the story of the woman at the well. And so uh, it's really beautiful and really, really compelling. And has uh, probably every third thought that I'm sharing is something that has been inspired by my reading through that book. Um, but leads me to this first question to talk about that Jesus was willing to acknowledge his need. How does the light of day illuminate our own sacred needs? Which leads to some questions. What's your relationship to needs? Do you feel like needs are a problem? Do the needs of the world feel like a burden to you? How might you listen to and welcome your own needs? Because I think part of what resting does, slowing down does, is it allows us to stop just thinking, well, in my career, in these social relationships, in my family and friends, uh, in the ways that I am serving or advocating in the world, all these other places that we might be putting really good energy and doing incredibly good work, what are the needs that are not getting met? Where are we losing contact with ourselves in the process? Our passage goes on, verse seven, a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus has sat and he's been tired and now he's acknowledging he has a need. He's thirsty. We might question Jesus, why don't you get off the rock and get to water yourself? But as the Samaritan woman herself will point out to Jesus later in the conversation, 
Jesus, you don't even have like a bucket to draw any water from the well. So if we do want to at least have a little bit more compassion for Jesus not getting off the rock and getting the water himself, he apparently would not have had a way to draw the water himself. And the Samaritan woman shows up and she does have a way to do this. But I love that, again, this Jesus who in most of the Gospel of John to me seems like super God Jesus, you know, like, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, I am the resurrection and life. Is this Jesus who is tired and who has needs and is having to depend upon other people to help him with all of this. Caroline Lewis suggests that to really understand the story of the woman in the well, we need to look backward to the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that happens before. And so she helps make some of these comparisons between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. You might remember that Nicodemus was this religious leader who came to Jesus at the middle of the night and is asking him uh, these questions seemingly and is trying to figure out what does, what does it mean that you're Messiah and what is your movement all about? And so the comparison she makes are Nicodemus is a man, the Samaritan is a woman, Nicodemus is given a name, the Samaritan woman remains unnamed, Nicodemus is Jewish, whereas the Samaritan is a religious other, Nicodemus is a religious leader, the Samaritan would have been considered a religious outsider. Uh, And what she sees is probably most telling uh, given John's sort of dualism, and he puts a lot of energy to things like light and darkness, meaning who are the people that are following in God's movement and having their lives illuminated and warmed uh, by the presence and community of God, or who are the people that are pulling away from community, away from God's goodness and justice and truth, uh, and finding themselves out in the cold and alienated and alone. That Nick at night, right? you see what? That's not mine, that's Caroline Lewis's. I gotta give it to her. Uh, that Nick comes at midnight, whereas the Samaritan is there right in the middle of the day. So if we have light as this illuminating factor showing who are the ones that are drawing closer to the presence and community and movement of God, then perhaps John is trying to tell us something very clear in contrasting these two people. Our next, uh, in contrasting them, it reminded me uh, of the early 90s. This happened just for a brief moment in NBA history, but two athletes that couldn't seemingly in their image be further apart were paired in a team, right? David Robinson, the Admiral, and Dennis Rodman, the Worm, for a brief moment found themselves on the San Antonio Spurs, and Dennis Rodman had this kind of, you know, bad boy, especially then he was starting to lean even more into the tattoos. And he's like, my hair can be whatever color I want. My gender expressions can start having a lot more fluidity in them than perhaps they have before. And David Robinson was this, I have gone to the military academy. I'm buttoned up. I remember lots of Christians of the day were sort of like, David Robinson is like the Christian NBA, you know, (laughs) And these two were just on a team together for a season. It was quite remarkable. Um, And so Pizza Hut even played into this at one point, having uh, a commercial where David Robinson was uh, 
sort of subverting expectations and giving Dennis Rodman time. You need to loosen up. You need to get a little bit more wild. You need to stop being so staid and conservative and rigid. And Dennis Rodman's like, oh, is that right, David? Okay, okay, okay. And of course, because they're trying to sell something because capitalism, at the end of the day, the, the main thing that he was needed to do was to start eating his pizza backwards because they were introducing the stuffed crust pizzas with cheese, right? So that's like... Come on, Dennis, you got to get really wild like me and eat pizza this way. But perhaps we can sort of see these kinds of distinctions between Nicodemus and this woman at the well, that they are subverting our expectations uh, in many different ways. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. At this point, the Samaritan woman is naming the elephant in the room. She's naming, hey, there have been ethnic, there have been nationalistic, there have been religious tensions between our communities for centuries. Uh, Essentially, since in the Hebrew Bible, during the times when the Jewish kingdom was once united, when they divided into a northern and southern kingdom, that created the first level of tensions between the north and the south. Different north and south, but tensions. And then the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, and many of the people were wiped out. And then Assyria brought in many people who were captured from other countries and sort of had them kind of like Australia, if you will, back in the day. Like, hey, you're going to be the place where we're sending uh, the people that we've captured from other places. And so the few remaining uh, Jewish people from the northern kingdom likely then began to intermarry with these people who had moved in from various other conquered cultures. And so fast forward more than a century beyond that, uh, when the southern kingdom has been captured and conquered by Babylon, and then finally they return. You hanging in there with me? Uh, the people from the southern kingdom find that there are what are now called Samaritans living in their area, right? They've been gone for a long time. And some of the Samaritans are like, hey, cool. Like, we like Yahweh God. You like Yahweh God. This should work out. We can all build together. And they're immediately becoming, well, no, 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 no. You were from the northern kingdom and more than that, you've probably married all kinds of people from other countries, and your religious views have probably been slowly twisted and tainted by all of the things that they believe. And so there becomes this tension that has emerged and that still existed into the time of Jesus between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. And so she's naming all of the ways that they have othered each other, and there has been animosity and hatred um, between them. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus seems to suggest to her that if she could really take some time to reflect on what's happening and what she's experiencing right now, that she might be invited into something that moves her beyond this antagonism, beyond this dualism, beyond being entrenched in this hatred, that perhaps there is some type of new water that is being offered to her. Uh, 
she's naming the discomfort. And when Caroline Lewis talks about ways that we illuminate discomfort, she asks some great questions. When you slow down the pace of your life, what's catching up with you? What uncomfortable questions are you, are we, afraid to ask? What discomforting reality are we afraid to name? Like me carrying that combo TV VCR out to camp. What are the discomforts that we are trying to evade and avoid? And you might even just begin to notice what are the things that you go to, like my TV VCR combo. Today it's more just binging on Netflix or whatever other Hulu, et cetera, thing might be the deal. Um, And what is that keeping us from Going back to the story of my mentor, as I moved to San Antonio and stayed there for many, many months and began reflecting and trying to create different patterns, it meant I was spending a lot more time kind of by myself and I had more time to reflect on my life. And uh, very quickly I started realizing, oh crap, I think I'm gay. Uh, This, for me as a person in my early 30s, had been this thing that I had been just running from, been unwilling to acknowledge within myself, uh, and all of a sudden, here this was showing up for me. Now, I was at a place where, like, theologically, I was already affirming and welcoming and celebrating LGBTQIA siblings, but it was another thing entirely for me when I started to realize, like, oh, this is a part of myself. This isn't just something external to me. This is something that I was seeing increasingly as central to who I am. And that created all sorts of discomfort, particularly when you're a pastor in a church, and particularly in a church that has been silent on the LGBTQI community like I was back then in San Antonio. That created all sorts of discomfort and uncomfortable questions that I had to wrestle with. Our uh, scripture goes on in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus says to her, I am he. This is his kind of moment to sort of flex. And Oh, but don't forget, I'm being very human. Still God, right? This is the ego ami in Greek. This is John loves to have Jesus saying all of these I am statements that are uh, alluding to his divinity. You're encountering something incredibly unique, Jesus is saying to her. Do you have the time to to absorb that? to see how that experience might change you and shift where you're at. Verse 27, his disciples came, being Jesus' disciples, they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, like, hey, that's a no-no in our culture. Uh, But no one said, so they weren't willing to name, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? They're like very upset, but they're just like, you know. Verse 28, then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? In Greek, the way this is structured, it is anticipating that the answer is actually no, not yes. But she is asking the question and leaving it open. She has encountered Jesus, and she's inviting people in what is also a signature of the Gospel of John, this invitation to come and see. It isn't, uh, hey, I can debate you into thinking like me or believing like me. It is come and participate in the movement of God. Come and belong in God's community. Come and see and have an experience for yourself that might be the thing that transforms us and gets us out of the same old predictable patterns we've been stuck in. 
Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. She allows herself by asking the question to be illuminated by wonder. Caroline Lewis also asks, what assumptions give way to curiosity? I think maybe I have that. Did I already ask this? No, maybe not. How does curiosity invite you to wonder and into wonder? How might you invite questions and curiosity into your life this week? If you're willing with me this week to acknowledge that we are tired and we need rest, it might just be a simple saying, I'm going to take a nap this afternoon, a really good nap. And uh, it might be as simple as just noticing when you're about to binge that third or fourth episode of the show to say, hit pause and maybe just spend 10 or 15 minutes journaling or 10 or 15 minutes just focusing on my breath and seeing what comes to me. Um, We are invited then into wonder. It is this wonder that can transform us and shape us into new spaces. Uh, Over time, I was able in my own journey to shift um, from feeling like, oh crap, when it came to my sexuality to thinking like, oh, this is such a beautiful, delightful, wondrous part of who God has created and called me to be. I remember when I was still working at my previous church, uh, I signed up through another organization to be, this was like still when we weren't doing conferences and things in person, uh, to uh, go on to what I thought was going to be a workshop with someone presenting and none of us even having the ability to like interact with. But I got on and it was like me and like eight other people uh, with Skylar Baylor, which if you know Skylar Baylor's story, Skylar Baylor is a transgender man uh, who was the first uh, division one trans athlete to compete in swimming. And uh, he was sharing about that experience and that story. And for me, I had never at that point uh, been in a conversation with someone who was sharing so vulnerably about their experience as a transgender person and what that journey had been like for them in different stages. And now Skylar is an activist and an author uh, and doing incredible work. And it allowed me to wander in a whole new way, not only at my own sexuality, but at someone else's gender expression and understanding. It increased my ability to find wonder in what, who God is and where God is at work in the world. What could happen to our world if we would rest? If we'd allow ourselves even to rest in the discomfort and allow that discomfort to lead us to wonder. Let us pray. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, and quietness and trust shall be our strength. By the power of your Holy Spirit, quiet our hearts, we pray, that we may be still and know that you are God, through Jesus Christ our Lord.